You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to this, the 130th episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor Marks, and joining me is Mike Workley. Hello from my secret bunker in Northern Virginia. Well, it's not so secret now, is it? Well, Northern Virginia is still a big place. It's several thousand square miles, so good luck finding me. I want to mention that support for today's show comes from Shutterstock. Every business needs high-quality images to attract and keep customers. Whether you're making brochures or ads or putting the final touches on your next tweet, the visuals you choose are proven to make a big difference. Get started today with a 20% discount at Shutterstock.com slash Apple Insider. Mike, we've got a lot of things to talk about today. Yeah, there's a lot of... There's not huge news, but there's a lot of things going on kind of at the same time. There's a lot of discussion about the iPhone 8 and what it may or may not include. There's discussion about a possible iPhone SE for the fall. What else What else are you thinking about? Well, I, I feel like this week is a week of ongoing news rather mm-hmm. than, than new things dropping, right? This is, this is continued stories. So Qualcomm is still in the news with the, the, the legal battle going on between Apple and Qualcomm, and actually between Qualcomm and Apple's manufacturers. It, it's sort of a, an interesting twist to the story that's going in there. Um, we've also got a couple of review items this time around, and uh, I think we've got some good stories here. Yeah, Qualcomm's going to be the gift that keeps on giving, I think, for probably a year, I would guess. Well, that depends if Qualcomm CEO gets his way or not. That's true enough. That's we will enough. We will talk about that in a little bit. As I said, we also got some reviews. What are some other things we're reviewing this week? Well, let's see. We've got HomeKit from KuGeek. This time, instead of the smart socket, we have the smart plug. So instead of plugging in a light bulb, you can plug in your whole power strip. We've got, oh, let's see what else. We've, uh, we, we actually talked about, geez, that's the only thing I reviewed. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about CarPlay. Okay, yep. Because CarPlay is one of the things that I truly love, truly enjoy. Mostly because OEM manufacturers have done such an abysmal job of in-car interface for years that they deserve what they get with the dominance of Android Auto and CarPlay. And more manufacturers are taking it in and putting it in, and we've got some aftermarket units to talk about as well. But before we get to that, the one thing that people know and love, iPhone 8 rumors. The, the first thing is we've been going back and forth these past few weeks saying, well, it's going to ship late. It's going to ship November. No, it's going to ship October. No, it's going to ship sometime. But the first quarter of next year is going to be huge. Well, J.P. Morgan says that the iPhone 8 is going to ship in September. Yeah, that was an interesting revelation. Most of the other analysts believe, including, in, including KGI Securities, believe that the iPhone 8 isn't going to ship for a month or two after the normal launch cycle. Now, JP Morgan says that instead of the 9 million that they are predicting, that Apple cl- ship closer to 2 million. What I want to know, and there's no good way to get data on this, is how does that number compare to the iPhone 7 Plus when it when it shipped? Because you're saying that when the 7 Plus shipped, there was a little bit of supply, supply constraints as well. When the 7 Plus shipped, if you got in in the first few hours of pre-orders, you could get one. But if you waited after that, you were stuck for some cases, six, eight, 10 weeks. Now, there are a couple of factors that led into that. There's some discussion that shipping company bankruptcy had some impact on that. It's well, but Apple also, isn't exactly transparent on that kind of thing. Right. But, but as you say, depending on which one you ordered as well, because jet black supply was constrained more than, say, silver, white, mm-hmm. or gold. Mm-hmm. But likewise, if you, if you went into the Apple retail store and you, you walked right in, you could possibly get a jet black 
day of. That was your best bet for Jet Black Bay of, day of, I think. There was none to be had for love or money here in Northern Virginia. And we've got, I want to say, eight Apple stores within 10 miles of this chair. So there, there's a lot going on here. There's discussion that there's OLED s- supply issues. There's discussion that there's Touch ID issues. There's discussion that Touch ID may not even exist on the phone, which I don't completely buy. We'll get to that too, but the yeah. so one of the things, one of the opinions surrounding this is that the iPhone 8 is rumored to have all of this advanced technology, and advanced technology can be hard to get up to scale at first, especially when you're trying to do something that hasn't been done before. Now, presumably, Apple's done pilot runs and has worked out all of these issues already, but it can be difficult to, to do something at number when you're doing something new. And so the idea is by pricing it very high. We've talked in the past about the idea of a $1,200 iPhone or a $1,500 iPhone. Neil has said in the past weeks that he would pay $2,000 for a fancy iPhone. Neil is a fancy man. Uh, Apparently. That's not in my budget, but uh, (laughs) more power to him if that's what he wants to do. Well, the, the position is that if the iPhone is your primary computer, if the iPhone is your computer that you go to first or most that you use it all the time, is it worth having that tool be the very best that it can be? I, well, I completely buy that argument. That's one of the reasons why I've got the, the 2016 15-inch MacBook Pro. That's my prime mover. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, I think Apple's market is iPhone is prime mover, which I think makes more sense when you look at that with the Apple Watch and the Mac with the iPhone in the center, as opposed to what I do with the Mac on the top trickling down. Well, and so this is, it depends upon what you're able to do. So so you, you can do many, many things on your MacBook Pro. And there are many things that you can do on your MacBook Pro that you can't necessarily do on your iPhone. But the reverse also is true, not based on capability, but based on knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. If you know how to do something faster and easier on your iPhone and haven't worked out how to do the same thing on your MacBook Pro, then your iPhone is your go-to tool. Well, I, th- I, I just think that given Apple's dominance in mobile in the United States, at least, I think that there is a non-zero percent. I think there's a significant percent of people that this is their primary driver. An iPhone or an iPad is their prime mover. And anything else you know, is superfluous or extra. And I agree that there are tasks that are better designed for a laptop and better designed for an iPhone. And I think that with iOS 11 and High Sierra, I think that Apple's trying to consolidate those more. And I think that the iPhone 8, going back to the original topic, I think that the technologies in the iPhone 8 are designed to, to let people do that. I think that AR is far easier on an iPhone or iPad than it's going to be on my MacBook Pro, for sure. Well, you have no so, camera on your MacBook Pro. For just for starters. There's, you know, there are other factors involved, obviously, not the least of which is lugging a 15-inch MacBook Pro through Ikea or something like that, right? So I, I think that, I, I think what we're looking at here is I think that we're looking at a future vision not yet realized that will be made clear to us in time, much the same that the app stores and the iPhone couldn't exist without each other, but one exists. It's not a chicken or egg situation. One came first and begat the other. My thought is that because it, 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 let's let me say something about the same as right. So if the iPhone is as expensive as we're talking about it being, and the supply is constrained in part because scaling up advanced technology is not easy, that by pricing it that high, you, you sort of limit the number of customers who are willing to pay that much. So you don't have to feel this, this sort of com- the, the backlash of su- constrained supply. People aren't going to be as annoyed because it wasn't in their budget to begin with. 
Well, another factor of this and is is Apple's not afraid of stunt pricing. They're they're not afraid of a seven thousand dollar Mac Two FX. They're not afraid of a sixty nine hundred dollar original PowerBook G three. Um, so that that Apple is dead. Well, it's not dead because the Cube at seventeen hundred ninety nine dollars was single processors compared to the fifteen hundred ninety nine dollar dual processor G four. And but what you were selling there was not the weaker computer. You were selling the miniaturization and the art of it. There, there was it was a silent computer or a nearly silent computer, and versus the wind tunnel. That can be argued, and I understand that. But then you're also looking at things like uh, an iMac Pro, which could easily be up to fifteen grand. So. Apple will charge what Apple will charge and they do it for a reason. And not the least of which is, is, is maybe keeping demand down. I, I think that the original iPhone pricing was set that way because they didn't, because of exactly what you said, because scaling new technologies is hard. And when the technology got scaled, Steve came on stage and said, well, now it's cheaper. And now we have this model and all of you people who bought it earlier are going to get a discount. And so I, some I think of that was that, backlash. That was in response. Yeah, I, I don't you think don't, Apple cares about you that. You don't question. think, I, I don't, you don't, uh, I, I have to differ with you there because we have seen the occasions where Apple does care, right? We have seen them care about giving people back the money after lowering the price so quickly. They didn't plan to lower the price that quickly. I, I can't imagine that uh, in, in, you know, April or May of 2007, they said, you know what, we're going to lower the price. Well, they didn't do that for the new MacBook Pro. They didn't do that for the 2017 MacBook Pro for somebody who bought it in, say, February. So right. what's the difference? Where's they, the we, we, we also know about backlash from the iPhone for an antenna situation, right? It is a rare example, a rare instance where a head of a company will cancel his family vacation in Hawaii to fly back and give a press conference unplanned. No, right. I, I, so I do they're, they're, what you're Apple saying. does Apple does know and respond to backlash. Apple doesn't feel that backlash very often, and Apple doesn't feel it deeply enough to feel like it needs to be responded to very often. But there have been occasions where we've seen it. Apple has respond. You know, you mentioned the cube. Apple responded to people complaining about cube crack. You mean the mold lines? Yes. Hmm. Yeah, the problem there, is I was in there service are, at the time, and that was such an overblown <laughs> problem. I, it's, well, that's what I'm telling you, is that Apple knows when a problem is overblown and when it is not, but never mind whether or not it's overblown, it may still deserve a response. Apple, okay. responded, Apple responded to the lack of updates for Mac Pro and Mac Mini. They, they came out and said, you're not getting updates this year, but remember, we still think about you and you are getting updates. That was unusual. I I, that well, was backlash. Yeah, that well, I don't think so. I think that was taking advantage <laughs> of something that they already had in the product pipeline. I think that somebody said, well, we don't have to maintain our customary quiet. We're already doing this. If so let's talk about it now. I disagree. And I disagree. If it were already in the product pipeline, then they would have been a lot closer to release. Are you telling me the iMac Pro wasn't in the product no, pipeline? No, the iMac the Pro, the iMac Pro was in the product pipeline, but the Mac Pro and the Mac Mini were not. Uh, I'm I, telling I don't you. think so. I, I think it, I, I think the Mac Pro why hasn't been updated them? since two. Why aren't we getting them until 2018? Intel. Point. Look right straight at Intel. The same reason that people are complaining about the MacBook Pro having the the 2016 and 2017 MacBook Pro only supporting 16 gigabytes of RAM. That's, that's more an Intel that's than a mobile processor Apple. versus a desktop processor. So and there, and frankly, the 2000. Why do I have a Xeon machine down here? Why is my 5.1 Mac Pro the same speed as a 2013 Mac Pro? 
Now that you can look at Intel for, but the I, I contend that the Mac Mini and the Mac Pro were not in the product line, mm. and that they came to be in the product line when Apple realized the backlash was happening, and they said, you're not getting them until 2018, but you'll get them. Nah, I, I see where you're coming from. I, I refute your point, but I see where you're coming from. It takes nine months to make a thing. I think it takes longer than that. I think I think for engineering with Intel and engineering some of the case things that Apple tries to pull off, I yeah, think it the, takes closer the, to the 50 fastest, The fastest you can do is about nine months or so. You, you, it's hard to get faster than that. Oh, yeah. So we're actually saying the same thing, just approaching it from different sides of the equation. Yes. And so in any event, them to make that announcement, right, I, I don't think that it was in the pipeline. Let's let's keep rolling here because yes. we've gotten a little far afield. So in summary, JP Morgan contends that we're getting iPhone 8 in September, that the average selling price is going to be around $629. That it takes into account because it's an average, takes account the low end and the high end. Uh and that that they expect that supply will be constrained initially, which is no great surprise. Although a good question is how constrained. Yeah, the the evolution of these reports has been fascinating to me. The about three weeks ago, the first report started coming out that the iPhone eight was going to get pushed back a couple of weeks from the normal release cycle, and then the doom and gloom started. And then the analysts figured out, hey, wait, this isn't actually going to steal sales. It's just going to push it into the next quarter. And so for the last week and a half or so, those have been the reports we've been seeing. Is the analyst realizing that this doesn't mean the end of anything? It just means a good first quarter. It just means a really good first quarter. Some of the people, the consensus seems to be around 90 million phones sold for the holiday quarter. And that's including a, a you know, I, I hate to say late launch for something that isn't even announced yet, but that includes a later than normal launch of the iPhone 8 in that prognostication. So it looks like holiday is going to be gangbusters. Now, we have another chassis rumor. The chassis, that is the metal back, has appeared in photos on Baidu, and there's a strange circular hole just south of the Apple in the back of the case. Yeah, it, it looks to be about the right size for a Touch ID. On the other hand, inductive charging doesn't work so well through an aluminum solid plate. So while I'm hoping that that's for wireless charging, okay. we'll see ultimately. Normally, in wireless charging schemes, you have coils, mm -hmm. which is how the induction works. And those coils are sometimes in a figure eight pattern, sometimes just in a circle on the inside of a case back of a phone. And there are frequently magnets because you have to align the coils in the device and the coil in the charging device just so, so that they're efficient. Well, hell, so they work at all. If they're not aligned, they don't function well. Right. And... So this hole is tiny. This hole is about the size of the fingerprint on my smallest finger. It's, it's about the size of the Touch ID penetration. It's about the size of a home button. It is. It is about the size of a home button, which leads people to suspect that it is a Touch ID sensor on the back of the phone. And people suspect that in part because it's, it's the same size. People suspect that because it's the same kind of placement consistent with devices like Google Pixel or the Nexus phones or the Honor. Many phones place that on the back. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, we, we in, internally at uh, Apple Insider headquarters, <laughs> the cabal of editors go back and forth over whether or not that's a convenient location. In, in our robes hanging underneath a 60-watt bulb from a dis undiscreet ceiling. Candlelight, bulb, candlelight. Yeah. Oh, candlelight. Okay. <laughs> I didn't get the memo on You the didn't candlelight. attend the last meeting. No, I missed the, it. The, uh, you know, in, in, in the darkened chamber at the secret location 
Undisclosed, not Northern Virginia. No. Thank you very no, much. I, yeah, didn't get the memo. Which is why you didn't attend the last meeting. The, uh, the We have fierce debates about this. It's a terrible location. It's on the back. You can't see it. It doesn't fall where my hand falls, says one guy. The other one of us says that, that no, it's actually, it fits just nicely. You, just, you find it pretty quick. It's not a big deal. You grab the phone, you put it there, which goes back to, if you will, the 2010 iPhone 4 debates over you're holding it wrong. Yeah, I'm not convinced that Touch ID is leaving. There, there was some discussion that there would be this new facial recognition sensor, and I, I'm sure, okay, I'll go with that. But the banking industry came to the party because of Touch ID. Well, and I, I don't see them being that jacked about a replacement not, for it. So not exactly. The banking industry came to the party because uh, secure the the secure element, the secure protection of it all. The fact that it was secured by fingerprint was 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 sort of ancillary to it. The point was that it was a unique identifier and it was secured and the, your your card doesn't leave your phone, your card number doesn't leave your phone, you get a token. Yeah, uh, yes, I do understand the tokenization process was vital to it as well. But part of this entire authentication process did center around the Touch ID. And the existing facial recognition technology is one of the reasons why the Department of Defense isn't super jacked about them is because they can be spoofed relatively easily. Well, so that's a good question. The thing is that before Apple did Touch ID and before they, they acquired that technology, fingerprint could be spoofed relatively easily, too. Yeah, the whole fake finger gag. Yeah. Um, um, you, you take a piece of you know, uh, scotch tape over someone's fingerprint, and then you go ahead and create a rubber fingerprint from that. And because it's got the heat of your finger inside the rubber fingerprint, it's fairly easy to go ahead and spoof fingerprint ID on previous technology. So, so your postulation here is ID. that the facial ID would actually work as far, for, as far as Apple's concerned. Well, and that's the question is, would Apple release something that did not in fact work? Well, do you think that Apple would release a, 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 a flagship feature like that, a tentpole feature and have it not function properly? I, I think that we're approaching the question wrong. I, I, I think that this is such a complex issue in every regard with the iPhone 8 because what we know is we've got all these sensors that are slated for the phone, but do we know for sure what they're going to do? No, we don't. Do we know no. exactly where the Touch ID is going to be? No, we don't. No. There's a lot of smoke, but where the fire is, we don't know. And and, and that's that's the biggest issue with the iPhone 8. So the, the there are things you can do that can make facial recognition work better. Right. And they're the same kinds of things that Apple talks about doing with Touch ID. Mm -hmm. You know, they're looking for electrical conduction across the surface of the skin. They're looking for heat, right? Because they know that you're a live human and that your skin conducts electricity. So, I mean, so just those lop things, off your finger and hold it up your phone, right? Yeah, well, it depends how fresh they did that, because if it's not fresh, it's going to be cold. Well, if you lop off my finger, I think I got other problems than what's on my phone. You know, it makes me think of the big Lebowski. Dude, I can get a toe any day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> right? You remember that? I do. So with facial recognition, you've got infrared sensors on the front of the phone. And classically, we've used those as uh, a way of face detection so that your your phone doesn't touch on the touch screen when you've got it held to your face. Right? So you're not mm -hmm. face dialing and pushing numbers on your face. Sure. Using that with a part of the camera to say... Um, is there heat in the face? Does this heat signature match the heat signature we recorded when we recorded the person before? Does it match the, the what a live human's face should look like, you know, as opposed to holding up a photograph? Yeah, which the Samsung sensor can be did, can be fooled by right now. Oh, Lenovo used to ship laptops with facial recognition to unlock windows. 
and you could hold up a photograph and fake them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Microsoft's new at-home authentication uses that, but it's it's not allowed to be used for any kind of financial regulation on that. So Right. But if you have infrared in conjunction with that, showing that there's a heat signature, showing that your face looks like a human face with proper heat on it, does that change things? Yeah, I, I don't know. And that's the thing is we're not going to know until something like this is fielded. And as far as the chorus of Apple Insider editors go, I don't care. The touch ID sensor being underneath your thumb on the front or on the back, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference to me. It means I'd have to train a new finger, but that's not a major crisis. Changes things for case manufacturers where classically case manufacturers have had one hole on the back sometimes to show off the Apple logo because it's very important. It's very important that everyone know that you have an Apple phone. Well, this, this all goes back to case manufacturers not actually having inside information. Because the cases that we've seen and the case that we reported on, some have had the hole in the back and some of them haven't. Well, what we're not we're not looking necessarily at case manufacturers for this. We're looking at the people who are showing off actual the physical parts, physical parts, case right. back, the enclosure, the the metal back of the iPhone, supposedly. Uh, case manufacturer rumors are slightly different, but it's it's interesting how. You know, Apple will tend to share information with a few select partners so that there are cases on launch day. Mm-hmm. I, since Apple has begun manufacturing their own cases, selling their own Apple branded cases, uh, that's still true. But I feel like there are fewer partners that are official. That what happens is that there's a lot of information sharing that goes on, and and some case manufacturers take a gamble on whether that that information is accurate. Yeah, famously with the iPhone five, I think it was. With there was the discussion that was going to be teardrop shaped. So that went haywire for a lot the, of the, the side profile teardrop. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That only really went haywire for one that went all in on it. I think most of them held off on that. Is that hard candy? That was a long time ago. I think it was hard candy. Anyway, it's kind of, it's, I it, don't it, recall, honestly, it's, it's, it's ancient history, uh, but yes, but it, it, that's what makes this, this time of year. So interesting from this side of the reporting, what's new, what's a, oh yeah. Hey, me too. What's independently sourced. What's not. That, that's the so, hardest thing to suss out right now. So case manufacturer notice showed a notch at the top of the screen with penetrations for, for sensors, speaker, and the camera. Mm-hmm. They had the vertically aligned dual lens cam- camera on the back. But they also had a, a, a large lock sleep-wake button. Yeah, that's an interesting one. It's it's in the same place as it is on the iPhone 7, relatively speaking. But it, it appears to be at least a quarter of an inch longer than the iPhone 7, which on the smaller device is it might even be more pronounced when you actually hold the device. Now, the report that we got this week about that from the renders from the case manufacturer, we actually saw back in April for the first time from a different case manufacturer. So this isn't necessarily a new revelation, but it has rekindled the, well, the touch ID is going to be in the power button discussion, which I don't buy because you've got a much smaller surface area, even with the larger length power button, you're not going to get a sizable, uh, you're not going to get a sizable enough section of your fingerprint. Hmm. That's my biggest complaint about that. Just doing, doing some back of the napkin math. It looks like the area on that power button is about half of what it is on the existing touch ID button. Well, my question then is, is a slice of your fingerprint still as unique as the whole vision of your fingerprint? I, I'm not really, I mean, I, there's somebody I could talk to and get lectured for about six hours on it to not get anything really that re, that useful from a journalistic standpoint, mathematician viewpoint rather than a discussion standpoint. But I don't know. 
I mean, that's a good question. At how much of how much different is the math on a circular print of the finger versus that slice that you're talking about? It's it's an interesting question, right? It would seem revolutionary to a lot of people if you could say we can identify you based on a thin slice of your fingerprint as opposed to seeing the whole of it. Right, because because law enforcement requires nearly the entire finger, nearly the entire fingerprint for for con- for confirmation of identity. But on the other hand, their error rate is significantly lower than one in fifty thousand. Well, and hmm, right. I mean, there, I, there's a lot of I questions was, here. I was trying to think about what I know about fingerprint and. And what I remember about what DOJ requires for fingerprint versus what um, DHS requires versus what TV shows require, and and I what I, TV shows require? Well, you know, you yep. know, you see all the uh, the NCIS or whatever shows it is. Yeah, I try to I go based on my DOD knowledge, which is unfortunately at this point is about six years old. But honestly, I don't think it's changed that much since then. And that is that's a a whole finger. And from really, it goes past the joint on your thumb or your index finger, depending on the implementation. And it's it's really it, it, it the math behind it is quite a thing. Yes, let's let's carry on here. So yeah, moving on, we have really cool processors in these iPhones. To say it in the worst way possible, the current processor maker of choice is TSMC. With me so far, I'm with you. Okay, in years past, Samsung has been tapped to make the processor for this. In fact, I think Samsung was the first processor maker for the iPhone. I believe you're correct. And they lost the contract for a while, but it appears that Samsung has secured a deal to resume making processors for Apple in 2018. It does look that way. The The fabrication factory details from the Far East appear set for that. There's some discussion that is so Apple can maintain the seven nanometer process for mass production of these chips. I don't, I guess I don't understand why all of a sudden TFC, TSMC can't deliver unless this is part of Apple's strategy to have multiple suppliers for the same component. I was just about to say that. So a- Apple has a very long institutional memory. And Apple, you know, Tim, Tim Cook was around at Apple at the time that. We had a, a lack of supply of power CPU, forgive me, a lack of supply of power PC products. Mm-hmm. You know, there was the, the Power Mac where Steve Jobs could not get Motorola to deliver. And so he had to introduce this year's Power Mac, same as the last year's Power Mac, more or less. Um, because there simply wasn't supply of updated processors. Yeah, then there was the and downgrade, right? I mean, the, the G4, the original launch lineup was 400, 450, 500, and then it backed down. It backed down to 350, 400, 450. Well, this was, this was when the Power Mac was still a Power Mac G3. This was the blue and whites before the Power Mac G4, and they simply had to keep the G3 around another year because Motorola wouldn't deliver. And they had multiple suppliers of PowerPC shortly thereafter, right? Motorola had been making them up to that point, but then IBM was IBM tapped in. Yep. to also make the G3, which was their PowerPC 750 series. Uh, after that, IBM was the sole source of PowerMac G5, and one of the reasons why we jumped to Intel, one of the reasons why Apple changed everything to Intel in 2006 was because IBM had promised that they were going to deliver a mobile G5 and could not. Yeah, it was an amazing time, man. And so sole suppliers, Apple will do it a little bit, but Apple more than anything wants to be in control and they are in control either by owning the technology or by having multiple suppliers so that they can choose when they need to, 
to substitute. So this that's what this strikes me as, is that as long as Samsung has the ultraviolet lithography machines to make the 7 nanometer process, that we're going to continue to see both TSMC and Samsung being responsible for the production of it. Because Apple doesn't want to own yeah. a fab. There's, there's no sense for Apple to own a chip fab until they have to. Yeah, I don't think they're really that interested in that component of it. Are you right? I, I, and I have no problem with Samsung being involved in this. The, the, the patent battles between Apple and Samsung on the smartphone side is business. And so is supply. And Samsung is still an Apple supplier now and for other components. So this is really no different. The other thing about it is that having both of these partners means that there won't be a dearth of supply when it comes to trying to to ship phones. We talk about supply constraints. Having multiple suppliers means that you are able to pump out more. I agree. And yeah, I don't think this is a negative move. I don't think TSMC is that happy about it. But I, I, I think that this is a net positive for Apple and its customers, assuming it's accurate, because that's not at all clear. We'll see how it goes. We'll see if we, there's another debate. Oh, do you have the do you have the TSMC or do you have the Samsung processor in your phone? Because yours is infinitesimally faster than mine. It, it it's yeah, that's never really, really mattered. That was crazy. That that was just nuts. That happened two generations ago. That was iPhone six or six S, I believe. Uh, I think it was a six. I, I I forget. I thought it was stupid then. I think it's stupid now. Thing. So you know that that's one of the things that Apple's always talked about is how you, you can be concerned about how it performs, how it works versus speeds and feeds. And they, they made this argument a lot when they were powered by PowerPC processors, that the PowerPC processor, processor could do more than Intel processor at the same megahertz, that, that megahertz didn't matter. And even now, just between two different parts suppliers, they've decided that those parts are equivalent, that for practical purposes, the fact that the, the one part can move slightly faster or be slightly more efficient than the other makes no difference. Yeah. What was interesting about that time was that I thought that that time they were shipping two different slightly uh, different numbers for nanometer process. Oh, yeah, that's right. I had forgotten about that. that. That one was something like a 10 and the other was a 15 nanometer process. And so there were people who were actively seeking the, the faster process, the smaller chip die. Uh, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a chip engineer, but... Just on a, a brief overview, Intel's version of the process size isn't the same as TSMC's. It isn't the same as Samsung's. The different chip foundries have different concepts of what constitutes the die size. So, I mean, I guess we're going to see how this plays out in time. Uh, but just because something is 7 nanometer from, from TSMC doesn't mean that Intel is behind at 10. Yeah. So, the things that I understood about nanometer processes is that... You, you get power consumption efficiencies. You get speed efficiencies out of them a little mm -hmm. bit. That by shrinking the die, you're using less power and you're able to, to get more speed out of it. Now, Apple's application of this is, is interesting because they've got four different dies on, on a processor, right? Mm -hmm. They've got four different CPU portions of the processor. And they are the two that are for going fast and that the two that are for processes going slower. Yeah, right. That's not, that started on the A10X Fusion processor and it stands a reason that we're going to see it on whatever the A11 is called. Yeah, you know, the a, a good illustration and I wish they'd make an updated animation of this was years ago with the Power G4 processor, they showed how instruction sets got put through the processor oh, and how they boy. get balanced. Wow. Do you remember that? I, I haven't thought of that in probably a decade. Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. That was uh, John Rubenstein standing up on stage, wow. demonstrating how instructions got pushed through the processor and how they got handled, where they were grouped, whether they were done asynchronously. And I would really like to see that kind of an animation for 
this die with the two for going fast and the two for going slow so that we could explain how instruction sets get handled. I, I'm still baffled that I, yeah, I, that just popped back you, into you my like head. You like that one? I do like that one. I liked it at the time and I, it, yeah, it's, God, I want to say that's 2012 maybe? It's 15 oh, years earlier, ago. earlier. That was 2002 or three. Oh, did I say 2012? My brain just. Yeah, they started doing that with Quicksilver. Yeah, that, they did that. That just, demonstration was the Quicksilver yeah. G4 yep. Power Mac, and it was shown at Macworld New York. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. And we've just gone back in history. Well, yeah, it's Macworld, Macworld New York. It's a good time, but yeah. alas, long gone. Yes. I want to talk a little bit about Casper mattresses. So I first saw Casper mattresses at CES a few years ago, and it was really interesting. First of all, there was the, the sort of weirdness of seeing a mattress at a consumer tech show. And and now we see a couple, right? There are some other competitors that brought mattresses to CES, but Casper was the first and, and remains one of the best regarded. And they don't make many mattresses. They don't have 10 models. They don't have 15 models. They don't have pillow top this, whatever, uh, flippable that. What they make is they make one. They make just one, but they make it right. And it's developed by over thousands of hours by a team of in-house engineers. The award-winning sleep service combines supportive memory foams and a springy comfort layer for just the right level of sink and bounce. And its breathable design keeps you cool all night. That's that's one of the things that can happen is if you don't have a breathable design, and this can happen with competitors' memory foams, is that it traps heat. And when you trap heat, you toss and turn because you're trying to cool off in the middle of the night. That's why people toss and turn. And that's not something that you experience with a Casper mattress. Casper is, is just a better night's sleep all around. And it's at a lower cost than a comparable traditional mattress. What's interesting about it is because it's this foam and, and light and springy kind of thing, when they ship it, it, it doesn't take two guys in a giant truck. The UPS guy drops it off in a box. And when you take the box and you open the box, the mattress expands and fills with air. It's, it's a wonderful thing. So buying the Casper is easy. You just order online. It's delivered to your door in this compact, how did they fit it in that size box? It's available in the U.S., Canada, and now the U.K., and shipping and returns are free. Victor had no idea. Well, I, let me rephrase myself. I had You're no, telling I, me that I had no idea? I, I had <laughs> I had no idea that we were, t- we were going to be advertising Casper on today's show, but I actually have one. Go on. Uh, no, it's. I'm just sitting here. I wish I'd known that we were going to be talking about the Casper mattress. I got one not all that long ago after my wife came back from the hospital. We desperately needed a new mattress. And it, it has helped her with pinched nerves. It has helped her with a, a number of other things. So the advantages of the Casper mattress, just from a therapeutic standpoint in that regard, for this family in person, and I didn't get the mattress for free. I paid for it with my own money. It was recommended to me by the, therapeutic, by the therapeutical staff. It's done enormous things for some of the nerve issues that she's had as a result of her stroke. So there you go. And I hope she's doing better. Huh? Every day is a challenge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, the we spend like a third of our lives sleeping. It's it's so important to sleep on a good mattress. And, and so Casper has this 100-night trial that's risk-free. So if you got one and you didn't love it, they would pick it up and they'd refund you everything. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash insider and using the code insider. This is news. Now, Apple, we know, has been one of the most profitable companies around, right? More more cash on hand than the U.S. government kind of thing. A very large company. Uh, In Fortune Magazine's 63rd list of Fortune 500 companies, Apple has seized third spot in revenue behind only Walmart and Berkshire Hathaway. 
however ranked by profitability, the company pretty much beats everyone at $45.7 billion in profit. And J.P. Morgan is in second place with uh, $24.7 billion. Walmart, for that matter, is at 11th place with $13.6 billion in profit. The, the list is interesting this year. A, a, a bunch of tech firms have just popped on it. Well, the one that amused me the most is Hewlett Packard is back. <laughs> After, I want to say, a six-year absence, Hewlett Packard is back. They're at 59th for revenue. Uh, Tesla, for the first time, is on at 383. NVIDIA at 387. Activision Blizzard at 406. And Adobe at 443. Okay. And Alphabet, which is, of course, Google, is at fifth yep. for profit and 27th for revenue. Yeah, I thought that would have been higher, but it uh, shows what I know. Well, so a valid question is, what do they actually profit from and what do they actually sell that they get revenue from? Well, users, users and data. Uh, this is not hardware. This is all ad sales. Yes. So actually, for 5th and 27th, that's quite good, right? Well, like I said, I was expecting that to be higher. <laughs> okay. Uh, Microsoft at 28th for profits and 7th for revenue. And Intel, makers of fine processors everywhere, for 32nd for profit and 16th for revenue. Yeah, I mean, the, the list as far as the, the established tech firms didn't really wobble that much from last year. But you wouldn't really expect it would. They're, everybody tech-wise is growing at a faster rate than, than say, energy companies are. And the, the fact that Apple made more profit than Morgan Chase by nearly twice just baffles me. Well, so there's there's... A lot of different things here, right? If we talk about these different companies, they're selling software, they're selling hardware, there's sales direct to consumer versus sales to other manufacturers, right? You know, and NVIDIA does have some direct to consumer, but for the most part, NVIDIA is selling to other manufacturers who then repackage and resell, yep. right? I think NVIDIA should be wildly profitable. I think NVIDIA should be going great guns, right? Because NVIDIA, and I don't own an NVIDIA stock, but but... It occurs to me that GPUs are essential to where things are going in the future. I agree. So I would I would see that increase, wouldn't you? I, I would think so. It's going to be interesting to see how that goes because the the balance of for for the GPU companies like Nvidia and AMD, I, I think that R and D is going to suck up a great portion of their profits, and I think that their I, I think that their revenue will increase, but I'm not sure that their profitability is going to be anywhere near the percentages that Apple and JP Morgan and Walmart and so forth are going to be able to pull down. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, any profit is good, right? Well, so that's an interesting question because are we saying that, that Apple isn't doing R&D? It doesn't make sense to me to say that. We know that they're doing R&D. We know they're doing all kinds of things that will never ship. Um, yeah, I agree that they're doing all kinds of R&D, but looking at R&D as a proportion of their budget and NVIDIA as a percentage of their budget, it, the last time I checked, had twice as, had twice the percentage of Apple's budget in R&D. Mm. Just, just from a percentage. I mean, percentages are can be intensely misleading because just because NVIDIA's got double the percentage, Apple's R&D expenditure was 15 times higher. Mm -hmm. So... It's uh, yeah. I mean, you got to lists are interesting and they're they're fun to look at and they're good to wave the pom poms for cheering on your favorite companies and booing the ones you don't. Uh, but as an effective measure of anything, as far as what the company contributes to the world, other than taxes, I guess I'm not sure how much of a measurement it actually is. Well, it's it's interesting to see these things together in terms of how much people are, as you say, spending right, how much the profitability is. 
and how much revenue they've taken in. So we can see if if um, there, there's some measure of success there. It's not a hard number, right? It's not a hard measurement that says that one's successful and one isn't, because NVIDIA is at 387. But I would say that they're definitely successful and definitely crucial. They're oh, yeah. just, as yeah, you say, I, I putting a lot into reinvestment you know, in themselves, in R&D. Mm-hmm. And, and similarly, Tesla, right? Tesla is an up-and-coming company. They're new-ish, right? Been around for a few years, but they do nowhere the business that traditional auto companies do. Yeah, nor does Elon Musk care. I- exactly. E- Elon doesn't mind. He's he's busy making cars. He's busy making the cars that he wants to make. And his real goal is, is well, yes, eventually to sell a bunch of cars. It's to get the network in place so that electric distribution, charging stations... Uh, are normal. Yeah, I think I think he's got a much larger plan than just selling electric cars. And as far as power distribution goes, I think he's got. I think he's looking 10, 20 years in the future on where he where his target is, and he's kind of setting the stage right now for that kind of thing. Well, the things that we know are we know the in-home power wall battery, right? Mm-hmm. We know the solar roof panels. Uh, yeah, I actually had a chance to hold one. Those things are amazing. Well, you're, you're holding amazing. version one. Version yeah, two is amazing. I, I, Right, <laughs> version version one is amazing. So version two is got to be out of this world. Right. So his long term goal is is not just that he replaces the power grid. His long term goal is that he replaces the power grid everywhere. Right. You, you charging stations, power wall, solar panel roofs. When he has all of those things in place. The traditional grid and the traditional power distribution with substations and wires everywhere become irrelevant. Ideally, I mean, he's going to have an awful lot of pushback from the power companies. He already is. There's they're already there are already localities that are starting to complain about solar installations and how they're not paying enough toward maintenance of the grid and that kind of thing. So well, there, he's it, got a lot. He's got a lot of headwinds to fight. The against. the the first thing that happens is that in years past, when you installed a solar roof, when you installed panels. You could install a, a meter and a box that allowed you to contribute back to the grid, mm-hmm. and the power company would buy your spare energy in for, for so that they would have power for peak hours. Yeah, at market rates, mind you. Yes, and a lot of those deals are going away. The mm-hmm. power companies are, are canceling those offers. So that makes your cost for installing solar panels much more. And, and can lead you to, it changes your amortization of the, the cost, right? So if your costs are going up and you don't amortize them as quickly over the life of the panel, then it may not make sense to install them. So in this way, power companies are, are retaining their customers and fighting back against the installation of panels right. simply by discouraging, by making it uneconomically as interesting. Yeah, and the, those are the headwinds that I was referring to. It's this is it's going to be well not directly Apple related. It's it's all kind of in the same. Let's change how things work. Let's change the assumption around how things work that Apple likes to pull off, like they did with the iPhone. And it's going to be interesting just to keep an eye on, even if it's not necessarily our purview here at Apple Insider. Well, here at Tesla Insider, it's important to remember that we we talk a lot about alternative energy and space exploration and and how all these things change. But seriously, there is a lot of push and pull between Tesla and Apple. Uh, You know, there's there's been poaching going back and forth between them for the car programs. Uh, for a brief period of time, the inventor of the Swift programming language, upon which Apple's future is pegged, is um, was was doing the head of automotive driving, automated driving at Tesla. Uh, 
you know, Elon has said that, uh, you know, the people that are going to Apple from Tesla are the people who couldn't cut it at Tesla. They've thrown words back and forth. Yeah. This is this is very much worth covering because those two companies are beginning to play in the same space and beginning to bounce into each other. And we've talked in the past about Project Titan, the idea that Apple's going to make self-driving car or the idea that Apple's going to produce telematics for other self-driving cars. Something is going on there. And we, we have yet to, of course, see any announcements or anything come to fruition yet. But, but the idea is that if we don't pay attention to this history as it's taking place, that we won't have the right frame of reference when it comes to be. Right. You know, we, we, we can kind of see these things happening. We just, we're seeing them bounce off each other. We're seeing them rub into each other. Uh, you know, Musk's future is he replaces the power grid. Everyone's driving a Tesla and everyone's got a power wall. Apple's future is making a car. I'm saying it. I know. Making a car, making telematics and bringing this to everyone in a, a way that, like the iPhone, sort of, and, and like the, the Mac in other ways, you know, brings the better experience to, at first, people who can afford it, and then to everyone. Yeah, we, we, we catch heat on the forum sometimes with saying, well, what does this have to do with Apple? Well, there's very little that's not related to Apple anymore, and, and this Fortune 500 ranking is proof of that. Apple's got hooks in industry. They've got hooks in your schools. They've got, there's the art, the augmented reality stuff is coming out. You're going to see people walking down the street, not just playing Pokemon go and actually using it for useful things like, like active Yelp reviews on a store they're walking by with their machine learning initiative and, and computer vision. So there's, there's a lot of these things that were setting up a foundation of education. So we don't just see it on a feed somewhere and say, huh, that's interesting. We can say, okay, well, this is how it relates to how Apple's doing business today and how it might relate in the future. And that's where we cover those stories that don't necessarily have anything specifically to do with Apple that day. Now, I, I own Apple stock. I say this every week. And I think based on, on a couple of things we've talked about so far, right? The idea of a $900 to $1,200 iPhone, mm -hmm. the idea of a good, strong first quarter, the idea of, of this profitability, uh, I, I feel like, you know, I would not be amiss saying that Apple share price could go to 170. That seems to be the consensus of most of the analysts, in fact. Uh, we've saw we've seen one outsider at 205 and we've seen one outsider around 125 that hasn't been updated in about eight about eight months. But, yeah, but forget that guy. Yeah, that guy's kind of crazy on that. It, we're already well above that. So why he's saying, eh, anyway, let's forget uh, that guy. Yeah, there's no way that's going to even happen. I think you're right. And I don't own Apple stock and I haven't for 16 years, I'm afraid. And nor do I have any in any kind of retirement funds that I use. Yeah, to have you, have you regret not stock. owning stock for 16 years. Well, you know, you? I do. Um, it, I wish I had been in a financial position to retain it at the time. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I definitely regret not having that now. I. I'm so with you on that. Qualcomm, your favorite company in mind. Oh, uh, like I said, the gift that keeps on giving. Qualcomm. Now, Qualcomm, let's let's be completely forthright. Qualcomm makes wonderful things. Oh, yeah. Qualcomm makes fantastic things. Qualcomm was behind Quick Charge. Qualcomm was behind, and I love Quick Charge, by the way. Quick Charge is fantastic. Um, no, it is. I, I have a Huawei Nexus 6P, right, that uses USB-C and Quick Charge. And I can plug that thing in and have a full charge in a very short period of time. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. Qualcomm is very good at what they do, and the products that they release are generally solid. Qualcomm 
does the modems inside your iPhone and mine. Qualcomm uh, was at CES and had a concept they were showing, this is very cool, of a modular router. And what was neat about it was that it had sort of a, a, a base plate, and then you could stack modules on top to change the router. So you could change it from an 802.11 to an 802.11ac to an 802.11ag, which is the uh, the the uh, 60 gigahertz, the 60 gigabits per second band kind of thing. You could stack different modules to basically reconfigure your whole router. Now, obviously, a product that will never be released like that, especially not sold by Qualcomm, because Qualcomm doesn't sell consumers directly. Qualcomm, what they do best is is Chips. put their technology yep. into other people's products. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you could have this, this reconfigurable thing, and they were showing 802.11ag at the show, which is ridiculously fast over very short distances. So if you wanted to move files around in-room, you could do it lickety-split. It was mind-boggling. So they do incredibly cool things. And Apple has used Qualcomm ever since the iPhone 4 days when they introduced the iPhone 4 for Verizon because Qualcomm owns the technology around CDMA. So Qualcomm is suing Apple in Germany, and they're doing it at the same time as their quarterly profits are going into decline. They've, they've filed two separate cases in Mannheim and Munich, and they're trying to block the import and sale of all iPhones there. Uh, yeah, it's just an escalation of the, of the battle between the pair in the United States and internationally at this point. They're, so... Go ahead. I, I, but but we need to keep these things separate because you say it's an escalation, and it is, but they're very separate issues. So this the, the German lawsuits are covering battery efficiency technology. They're, they come from the same batch of the six patents mm -hmm. that are, are being discussed in Qualcomm's ITC, the International Trade Commission complaint. But this is for infringement, uh, claiming infringement on a low-voltage power-efficient envelope tracker and a power tracker for multiple transmit signals simultaneously. The ITC complaint is targeting iPhones that integrate wireless modems manufactured by Intel. So the, the ITC complaint is just about the wireless modems and Intel provided. The German lawsuit seeks to end import of all iPhone models. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. And I think that this motion is exactly why the Qualcomm CEO said a couple of days ago that he was expecting an out-of-court settlement at some point. I, I think that it's going to be one of those omnibus deals like Apple made with, with um, Nokia that just one day the deal was struck and all hostilities were over. And now all of a sudden, no Nokia health products are back in the Apple stores. I, I think it's going to end exactly that way. I don't think it's going to be soon, mind you. I think that we're well, still looking so at another year of this. So Steve Mollenkamp is the CEO of Qualcomm, and he said, these things tend to get resolved out of court, and there's no reason why I wouldn't expect that to be the case here, although I don't have an announcement or anything, so please don't ask. But that's really the way it works. Yeah, he's not wrong. I mean, these things do, the Apple versus Samsung smartphone patent battle is the exception, not the rule to these kind of debates. Well, so the question is, mostly these things settle out of court because they're cheaper to settle out of court. Mm -hmm. Why would you want to pay lawyers when you could just simply be done with it? Well, why would you want to pay lawyers more, right? I mean, you're going to pay lawyers anyway. You're paying lawyers anyway. You're always, first of all, if you're if you're an Apple or you're a Qualcomm, you have lawyers on retainer and you have lawyers on staff. You're always paying lawyers mm -hmm. no matter what. But when you go to court, your fees increase significantly. Oh, yeah. Right? So you could write a check and call the whole matter done, or you could go to war. So what is it that causes Apple to go to war? 
I, I wish I could say for certain it, it's Apple takes umbrage at the iPhone design with Apple versus Samsung. I mean, I'm that I keep comparing it to that because that's the scale of what we're dealing with with Qualcomm here. This is not a little battle with a patent troll. This is a big battle with a large supplier that's going to have repercussions for Apple's supply and, and, and frankly, its ability that, to sell the iPhone if Qualcomm got its Well, that, that until Apple diversified sourcing to include modems by Intel, Apple was dependent upon. Well, but in this case, the action with the ITC targets the Intel modems. So th- this, is, you know, this is a big deal, regardless of... of and the question is, is who's at fault, right? I mean, well, ne- never mind. Hold on. I think the the insight that we need to have here is that Apple goes to war on matters of principle. Yeah, I think you have a different and, view of Apple as a whole than I do. Okay. You had, you had talked earlier about how, yes, Apple does pay attention to feedback, and I think they pay attention to feedback when it suits them. And in this case, you're saying that Apple goes to war... Uh, you know, on, on the principle of the thing. And I don't think that's the case here. Again, I, I think that they're trying to, to eke out and not pay Qualcomm quite so much for the technology. Otherwise, why shift to the Intel modems in the first place? Uh, no, I, I disagree here. Let me, let me lay it out. Give me a second to, uh, to f- lay this out. Okay. And, and then you can tell me how I'm wrong, <laughs> but a- Apple goes to war on matters of principle. Apple takes personal offense to a few things. They, they, you mentioned the Samsung case and the shape of the iPhone. Apple takes offense to the shape being copied because that's theirs and they made it and it's their baby. They take offense to people doing swipe to unlock. They take offense to, they originally took offense to multi-touch. And for a brief period of time, for a while, Android didn't have multi-touch because reasons, right? It was apples. Because reasons. <laughs> yes, it was apples. All right. Here, the way this works is that Apple is not paying license fees to Qualcomm directly. The manufacturers of the phone, the Foxcons, the, you know, the Hanhai Foxcons, the uh, oh, blanking on other supplier names at the moment. Ooh. It, it doesn't um, it doesn't really matter. The right. Apple supplier. They 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 pay licenses because they're the ones that are are bringing in the chips and actually manufacturing with them, right? So they pay to Qualcomm the fees. And Qualcomm, the, part, part of the uh, the concern here is, is that Apple is paying twice. Apple is paying the suppliers to pay license fees, and then Apple is paying the license fees directly to Qualcomm, and that Qualcomm is billing twice. And that is that is offensive. You shouldn't have to pay twice. You should pay once. And that's what's at issue here in the lawsuit is, is Qualcomm's royalty rates, which are calculated based on whole device value, not per component. So that also goes back to the the Samsung trial. That was an issue that came up in the Samsung trial is how much is the design valued as a part of the, the whole device? What component is the design, right? How much should Samsung pay for infringement based on this? Should they pay based on the whole device? Should they pay based on some some saying that the device is only so much percent? Well, here, because royalty rates are calculated on a whole device value, not per component, um, Apple was paying royalties, in, and they, they contend twice for the whole device value. Well, here's the good news. I'm not going to say you're wrong. I, I think you are right, but I think you're right for... I think you're taking yesterday's Apple and moving it forward. I, I think that Apple, under the tenure of Steve Jobs did take things like this personally. I think that they did take out Samsung's 
alleged theft of Apple's design patents in the renovation of the Samsung line under Steve Jobs, I took, think they took that personally. But I think that suits like this are all about cutting costs. I mean, I think that's just the philosophy of the leaders. I, I think I, I think that Steve was the mercurial hothead in regards like this. He did famously say that they'd go nuclear and, oh, yeah, we patented all this. And mm. I, I think that Tim Cook's background in supply and demand and that kind of thing leads to suits like this. I, I don't think there's anything personal about this. I think this is just business. I, I would say that Tim Cook is the proverbial cooler head that, that where Steve Jobs quotes like going nuclear do exist, that we've seen them there in the book, that Tim Cook is more reserved and more controlled. But we have seen him get angry. We have seen what what Tim Cook looks like when he does take something personally. And he's a lot more in control. He's a lot more reserved. But I do think that Tim Cook's Apple also can take things personally. Okay. That it looks a little different than blowing your stack. But there, there is a calm, quiet, reserved, and controlled way of going to war. And this is it. Okay. And there's a lot to be said for, for keeping your cool when everyone else around you has their heads on fire. Okay, buddy. Let's get all, <laughs> let's get all poetical now. Ah, it's true. Look at it. Yeah. But in any event, the going back to the Qualcomm point is, uh, this is ugly. This is not going to be pleasant for anybody. We're going to see more court. We're going to see more court cases filed across the globe. We're going to see more legal action in the United States. We're going to see more declarations. We're going to see other court cases brought in like the Supreme court and Lenovo from a couple of weeks ago now applies to this and it should, it's the, it's the first sale doctrine. Okay. Go ahead and lay that out for our listeners. Well, in, in essence, I am not a lawyer, but in essence, the first sale doctrine says that once you have something in hand, you cannot control what the ultimate purchaser does with it. You cannot control resale. You cannot control what it goes into. You cannot control any of that. And you cannot. And in the past, in the past, people have tried to circumvent that by attaching end user licenses that modify that. Right. And You're, you're, you're purchasing a physical item, but all of the intellectual property on it is simply licensed. And that breaks the first sale doctrine. Right. And it doesn't. The Supreme court said, no, in fact, it does not. So we'll, we'll, we'll see exactly how the courts deal with this. And if this ends at one court, I'd be very surprised, which is why I think that the Qualcomm CEO is right. I think that some kind of deal will be struck. I just don't think it'll be soon. I want to point out that there's something worth watching. We're going to follow this again because the German thing is very interesting. So German courts work differently yeah, than U.S. courts. They do. And German courts in specific work differently than than you know, any court I can think of. For, for years, there were lawsuits where you don't actually ha- So in, in America, in an American court, you have to have standing that you are the, the uh, hurt party, right? You have to actually have suffered the damages to, to bring a case. And in German court, I, I am also not a lawyer, and I'm definitely not a lawyer in Germany, but it's I, I seem to remember a case years ago where lawyers brought cases and they weren't representing either party. They weren't officially, you know, they hadn't been hired by the companies that were involved and they simply brought the case because they knew that it violated the law. And so it's possible to do things that don't necessarily make sense to an American's understanding of legal system in Germany that don't happen anywhere else. And I think Qualcomm may have chosen Germany for that reason. And German courts are also faster in this kind of regard than the American courts are where it's going to take 18 months or more for the ITC to actually even start looking at this. 
it, the German court, if, if it came to its logical conclusion, which whatever the courts are going to decide is going to be that conclusion, this could be done long before that period is over. Right. So they're, they're shopping for a jurisdiction that is advantageous to them. They're shopping for one that's going to be faster acting so they can actually get the injunction and prevent sales of the phone, where in other courts, it might be about simply dragging things out and collecting a higher number at the end for a settlement. So we'll see. Definitely worth watching. I'm on pins and needles. I Now... What what phone do you use personally, Mike? Ah, it's funny you should mention that. I have an iPhone 7 Plus, but that's mostly my work phone. For my, my prime mover is an iPhone SE. You and Neil. Yep. You guys got small hands, don't you? No, actually, I've got pretty decent sized ones. <laughs> but you know why? I actually touched on this topic a little bit earlier in this podcast. The reason why is because my primary computing device is my MacBook Pro. I have an Apple Watch, but it's one step too far down the, the, the little old lady who swallowed a fly line. It's it's one step too far removed from my Mac for it to be really that useful for me personally. I think it's an amazing device. I think it's outstanding for what it does for people. I just think it does better for somebody who's an iOS device is their primary device. I think the watch is going to become a lot more useful when watchOS 4 releases with the, uh, the Siri face. I, and I will give it a shot again then. But I know where you're going with this. You're going with the rumors that popped out this week that there would not or would be a new iPhone SE. You read me so well. So you and Neil both use the iPhone SE. Mm -hmm. And Neil has believed that the iPhone SE is on a two-year cycle for updates. I think he's right. Um, the The iPhone SE was just updated at WWDC. No, it wasn't WWDC. It was earlier in the spring with doubling the, doubling of capacities. It was just a storage update. It was though. just it was a not storage an update, update. Right. for anything else. And that's the kind of update that you can get when you're looking for efficiencies in supply chain. But it did. you're already buying a number of these chips for storage across your whole product line, you right. may as well put them into the one instead of buying a separate unit. But it didn't need to be because it already had the A9 processor. When, when, the a when the SE launched, it had the flagship processor in it. Well, I want to remind you that Apple periodically updates their products even if they don't outwardly tell us. Sure. The, the iPad 2. Huh. was an iPad yes. that ran for many years in release, right? It, it was about a three- or four-year released product. Mm -hmm. And over that time, it wasn't the same one that they sold when they launched no, it was the not. thing. No. They, they kept changing the processor, not to, to change whether or not it was an A7 or whatever it was, but they, they reduced the process size. They, when they reduced the process size, they were able to fit a little more battery in, do this. You know, it was, it was a device that went through a number of changes in its life cycle but they weren't outwardly announced changes. Here, the storage update was obviously a change that people would notice. It was an outwardly mm -hmm. a kind of visible change. But if, like I say, if you're buying, if you're buying 32 gig and 64 gig and 128 gig parts across your whole product line, it doesn't make sense to keep buying the 16 gig part. No, I agree with you in that regard. It's just one more thing to fool with, one more thing to purchase and have stock of just for the one SKU. Anyway, going back to the original point, what, what came out this week is one... One Android primary tipster saying that the iPhone SE would never see another upgrade again. And a day later, another report from a, a different source claiming that the iPhone SE was going to see an update this fall. So, the first of all, let's, let's talk about the origination of this thing. So, there's a fellow who's an analyst and a leaker whose name is Pan Jutang. Mm -hmm. And that, forgive my bad pronunciation, but uh, he, he wrote on Weibo a post that is written in English 
but it is it is not written in the best American or British English. Well, he also well, let me back up a little bit on that one too. He actually posted the same the same post in in Chinese, and I had a buddy who's a Chinese speaker look at, it and he said it's just as poorly written. So there's no okay. there's no Good. extra. It's, it's not a language yeah, barrier. It's not a language it's barrier. This is just a, an poor information. Writing is poor writing. Yeah, this is an information. So issue. here's what he wrote. He said, and and I'm reading the English post rather than yeah, a translation of the this Chinese is quality post. work right here. Okay. So nostalgia and fond of the small screen to buy an iPhone SE or Millet 5C it future Android brand new machine manufacturers should not be less than the 5.5 inch love crazy SE that size would not have the updated version pan teacher. You will find out a four inch Millet Millet phone Modi or 4.3 inch. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't help it. <laughs> Millet. Excellent. Mike. Yes. Hold your, hold it together. I'm trying. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Gird yourself. So here he's saying that he's nostalgic and fond of the smaller screen size. Mm-hmm. You and Neil agree. You like that screen yeah, size. Yeah, I do. Uh, the iPhone SE or the iPhone 5C was a great size. Uh, in the future, Android brand new machines should not be less than the 5.5 inch. He loves the crazy SE, but that size is probably not going to be updated for the future. That, that, that the idea is that, um, he loves that size, but that size is not the size for future devices. Yeah. It's, okay. I don't, I, okay. well, so, but that's a personal preference yeah. is what I'm it reading is. that as that, that there are a lot of people like Neil who, if they could have kept the, the iPhone four size probably would have. I, I, no, uh, that's a little too hold small up, for me. But. Hold up. So, okay. You're not that, but the five C and the five S size or the five size is the right size for him sure. and the right size for you. Sure. And we see the, a large number of devices keep increasing the screen size. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. Not definitely not debating that. There's no doubt about it. Okay. So my take here, a lot of people interpreted this to mean that the iPhone SE was doomed and would not be upgraded again. All from this one fragment that says, love crazy SE, that size would not have the updated version. Okay. I, I'm, I'm waiting for the other shoe. That is that is a lot of tea leaves to read into that. Oh, yeah, there, there, that is a lot of tea leaves to read into that. And that's why the day we got the report, we didn't write about it because yeah. it was so, a bunch of nonsense. Here, here, I it could well be that he simply likes that screen size, but acknowledging that many devices are not that screen size. Sure. That even even among the affordable Android phones, right? And when we talk about affordable Android phones, we're talking about things that are anywhere from eighty to one hundred and fifty U.S. retail for the device, unsubsidized, that are sold to developing nations. Mm-hmm. Because people need handsets and people want handsets. And so, you know, a HomTom whatever or a um, Ukataya or, or any of these you other pretty much Android handsets. You amount of syllables together and there's probably an Android developer working on you, it. You say that, but um, hold on. I'll tell you some names of, of Android phones. I mean, I don't even think Wikipedia counts the number of Android developers anymore. Well, let's see here. There are brands that we in the U.S. know. There are brands like Xiaomi or OnePlus. There are brands that we in the U.S. are slightly less familiar with, like Doogie, D-O-O-G-E-E, or Ulefone, U-L-E-F-O-N-E, or uh, Leco, L-E-E-C-O, right? You're not or, really disproving my point here, man. Or Cubot, C-U-B-O-T. <laughs> well, I didn't say I was going to disprove it. I said I was going to support it. Okay. Um, or the, the Ligu, L-E-A-G-O-O. 
right? And the Ligu, which is a perfectly cromulent phone, right? Cromulent. It is a, it's a 16 gig phone with a 5.7 inch HD screen, yeah. 1280 by 720, has a fingerprint sensor, and its price is, take a guess. Uh, 89 bucks. Mm, 76. Close. I'm so sorry. You know, if you wanted to have an original Lenovo phone, you could have one for the grand price of 127. Uh, a HomTom HT17 could be had for as little as $60. Well, that, that's all fine and good, but going back to the SE, yeah. the, the reason why that it's, I think Neil's right. I think it's a two-year upgrade cycle. I don't think we're going to see one in the fall because I think that it will dilute Apple's flagship too far. I don't think that they're interested in cutting back the all-important average no. selling price number, which I think is ridiculous. I don't think I don't think it dilutes because Apple has always said that they're going to do things at price points for every person, and that the person who buys an SE is not the same person that buys a, a seven or a seven plus or an eight. Uh, sure, but why have one event when you can have two for twice the price? It's, well, there, there are. You just make the iPhone SE a small segment of the bigger event. Sure, uh, I, I could see where that could happen, but I think it's more likely that they'll release it at the same time that they did in 2016 in the spring to try and ease out those seasonal peaks and dips that the analysts freak out about. Still, for some reason, like they've never happened before. Um, yeah. It's. I, I just don't, if they did one in the fall, I don't think it would have the A11 or whatever it's called. I think it would have the A10X. And I think that that defeats the purpose of having a phone that they can turn around every two years as opposed to every year. I think that releasing it in the spring with the flagship processor makes more sense from an upgrade cycle in developing markets, how they're pushing the phone in India as why Wistron exists in the country for filling Apple's 30% of goods manufactured in the country requirement. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's that there is the the same reason why we're not going to see one in the fall and the same reason why we're not going to see one, why we're not going to see the line discontinued. Uh, all right. Well, we're in agreement. The line's not going anywhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think our, our different, our, I think our opinions vary on why, but I think that the line is not going anywhere. I think that we'll see another refresh in the spring. I think you're saying maybe in the fall. I'm, I'm not committed to a timeline on that. Okay. I... I'm comfortable with it being in the fall, but it doesn't have to be for me. Okay. I mean, I'd be fine with it in the fall. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, better, newer stuff sooner is always ideal. I, I What I say is that I see that, that it, it continues to exist because it continues to fill a real need. Sure. That, that Apple has always... For, first of all, Apple's not been afraid of cannibalizing themselves with sales. Sure. I agree with that. Um, they, they were happy to introduce the SE and lose sales of the most affordable iPhone 6 device, for example, or 6S device, for example, to the SE, mm -hmm. because it was the more appropriate device. It also meant that it was possible for carriers to absorb the cost and say, this is your free iPhone, mm -hmm. which was how it was sold in Walmart. You know, pay a dollar, get an iPhone kind of thing. And of course, they, they make it back on the subscription and the service. Right. The, it, it, it makes sense for Apple to have a device that fills that need. And that device needs to be updated and released in a time frame so that it can cannibalize those sales such that people don't end up stretching to buy more iPhone than they can they feel they can afford or don't end up going to an Android device instead. Now what we know I is, mean, I, is I anecdotally that. that that people who switch to an Android device tend to come back. They tend to be dissatisfied with it. Um, not all of them, but some of them. And that 
having the SE can can help stave that off. Okay. That's those are all things that are part of Apple's goal set. So the the question is, does the re- release schedule match up with what they've accomplished in terms of hardware prototyping and having one ready? And does it match up with, um, you know, are they concerned about those seasonal bumps? I would tend to say almost not. If if the dips and valleys haven't bothered them so far, they probably don't bother them yet. Okay. Let's move on. I installed something on my phone yesterday, and it did exactly what I wanted it to do. Do you know what it was? I have no clue. You don't know what it was? No. Yesterday, about this time yesterday, I installed iOS 10.3.3 uh-huh. on my phone. Yes. Now, I have not used any of the betas on my phone, and I have done this intentionally. I have not run iOS 11 beta on my phone. I have not run the 10.3 betas on my phone because my phone is my primary device. It is my only device, and I'm not going to mess it up with beta stuff at yeah, this time. That's good I, advice. I, in, uh, in years past, I have run betas, and they have bit me, and I don't need it. Um, I'll run it on a different device. I've run the 10 uh, point, I've run the iOS 11 devi- betas on an iPad Pro. I'm running them on an iPad mini. I'll, I'll do it on other devices, but on the primary device, forget it. Public release only. Yesterday, all morning, I was having troubles with Wi-Fi. I would have troubles where I could join my regular home Wi-Fi and not have the Wi-Fi symbol show up. It was still showing LTE. Or I'd enter in the password and it would say incorrect password. And I rebooted the home router and I, I unplugged everything that was HomeKit related. I did all kinds of things. Um, you know, short, short of drawing symbols on the ground in chalk and reciting incantations, I did just about everything you could think to do. I reset all of my network settings in the phone. I, I did a number of things. And I was still getting either incorrect password for my Wi-Fi, which it was not the incorrect password, or I was able to join the Wi-Fi and not get the Wi-Fi symbol in the status bar. And upon installing 10.3.3, it all got better. I was able to join Wi-Fi. I was able to have the symbol up top. I was able to be in airplane mode and turn Wi-Fi back on and have data. So I was using Wi-Fi for certain. And all of this started, can you guess why? Testing something? Almost. I I have a number of HomeKit devices in my house, many of which are HomeKit switches. That is, they're things that plug into my wall outlets and then switch whatever device is plugged in on the other side of them. And I have I have iHome, I have PureGear, I have um, I have iDevices, I have oh forgive me, a few others that I'm forgetting right now, and. From time to time, these kinds of things need firmware updates. As Apple yeah. changes what HomeKit spec is like, they need a firmware update. And, and, and some of them needed firmware updates because they now also work with Amazon Alexa and Google Home. And some of the apps for these things have a button to allow you to update firmware. And it's always visible, so you can check to see if there's an update available. And some of them, some of them, mind you, do not have a button but simply will check in the background periodically and alert you if there's a firmware update available. Yeah, which is, man. I, I, wish which the, is, I wish the Kugeek stuff I reviewed did that. Jeez. So the iHome stuff has a button, check for update. And the iDevices stuff, it's invisible. It's not there. They check in the background and then alert you when the update is available. Well, the Kugig does do that, but the problem with that is, is it's not necessarily that obvious how to do it. The The app, it, it's five taps mm-hmm. to get to a firmware update spot, which is ridiculous. And 
Yeah, I mean that's my biggest complaint with the Koo Geek stuff, at least. But anyway, th- I digress because we're talking so, about so I was I was trying to update this iDevices product that I hadn't updated in ages. I'd updated all the all the Peer Gear stuff as far as I know is up to date. The iHome was very easy to get up to date, but the iDevices one was quite difficult because I couldn't get it back on my HomeKit network, my HomeKit mm-hmm. Home. And because it was on this older firmware, it was being really cantankerous about yeah. doing it. Combine that with the fact that iOS was acting up and I could barely get iOS Wi-Fi working properly. So the iDevices unit has both Bluetooth and Wi-Fi antennas in it. So they use Bluetooth to advertise that it's there to start the pairing. And then we'll switch it over to Wi-Fi once you get it on your Wi-Fi mm-hmm. network, which was really cool, except that I could get it, I could see it, I could find it, and then not join it. And the, the iOS patch helped you out with that. The iOS patch solved the problems. That's fantastic. And now I have a functional iDevices unit again. Yeah, they do. They fix a lot of things quietly. Like, for instance, with my 2016, I've got two stacked 4K monitors here. And I direct connect them. That's that's your MacBook Pro. Yes. That's my MacBook Pro, yes. Uh, yeah, we're shifting over to the Mac OS update. Um, I've got various inputs going here, there, and everywhere for these displays, but I go USB-C to DisplayPort when I'm not going through any GPU to both these displays to use them for work. And if I've used the displays connected to my receiver through HDMI, I have to power cycle the monitor for them to sync properly through DisplayPort and the USB-C cable. Well, now I don't, and nothing happened to the monitor, so this is all in in the Mac better. update. Yeah, that got better. Yeah. Now, the reason that everyone should update to 10.3.3 for iOS and also for tvOS and, and, you know, Sierra and watchOS, update all of the things. And the reason that I'm recommending that is because there was also, as a part of this, a security update. Yeah. Every time that there is a point update to an OS, there's a bunch of security fixes folded into it. Right. And there was a vulnerability called BroadOwn. And BroadOwn had the interesting characteristic of if you were nearby a, a, uh, a, a, let's say, bad actor Wi-Fi station, that it could execute code on the Wi-Fi chip in your iPhone without you doing anything, just by being in range. Now, I'm, I'm not entirely certain what sort of code it would execute or just how bad this vulnerability is, but it's pretty creepy and and altogether unwelcome that just by being in range, you'd be vulnerable. Yeah, there, so there, doesn't I, seem I, to be any, there doesn't seem to be any active exploits for that, but there was proof of concept code at Black Hat. So guaranteed there was somebody working on it. Well, absolutely. And, and sometimes people are working on it because of the intellectual interest, and sometimes people are working on it because Less, of... Yeah because they have a profit motive involved in doing it, let's say. Um, you know, selling exploits can, mm-hmm. can be big money. But knowing that someone was working on it, knowing that it was technically possible, means now is a good time to update. And I am very pleased with the results of the update. Feel yeah, comfortable we, I've, to try. I've updated everything. I, you know, my watch, even though I don't personally use it, my, my Macs, my Apple TVs, it's a very, very good update. As with anything, you should make sure you have a backup, but that's just a good philosophy anyway. So we were talking a little bit about smart plugs. You reviewed the KuGeek P1 smart plug. It's um, right. it's an interesting. What did you like? It's an interesting what did little you like product. It? It, it's it's inexpensive. It's it's cheaper than alternatives from other companies. It's one of those. How cheap pl- is it? It's well, the street price is thirty bucks for the plug. It's one of those products that well, the list price is fifty bucks, but I can't find it any place for more than thirty. So you're finding it for twenty nine. Finding it for twenty nine bucks. Yep. The okay, and most of the other ones that I'm finding are thirty nine. Thirty nine or forty. Thirty nine to forty five dollars. Yeah, I yeah. agree. So th- there's a ten dollar price difference between this and other products. 
it is, it's a chunky square plug. So if you're going to use it up and down on a power socket, you're not going to be able to use a three prong plug in the upper or lower socket. Right. So American, American wall sockets for the, the most part are arranged vertically, yep. one stacked on top of the other. And what you're saying is that if you tried to plug in two of these, you could not do it because it obscures the other port. Right. It obscures the other plug. That's right. And yeah. some of the, some of the more expensive offerings don't do that, but some do. So th- this may or may not bother you depending on your use case and what you're using it for. Yeah. I, I want to point out that the iHome product is one that does not obscure the second right. port. You can have two iHomes stacked one on top of the other and use them both. Long story short, it's, it's a solid home kit product. As long as you're using the home app, the Kugi app is a mess. The, the, it will allow you to add the device to home kit, but that's, other than firmware updates, that's where I recommend your involvement with that app stop. So add it, switch over to home, don't look back. Check for firmware updates from time to time, but even when you do, it's not going to be that it's not going to be that forthcoming on what exactly you're updating. Yeah, I'm looking at your uh, your your screenshots here from your review, and your firmware update shot says it has a couple of Chinese characters and says Marvel SDK 1.1. Yep. And so here's what happens is that Apple typically when they make a, a, a new product area like this, right? They'll partner with a chip maker as their favorite chip maker, and they'll have a reference design and an SDK. And so, uh, you know, for, for AirPlay years ago, it was someone who'd been doing DLNA for years. Here, Marvell is, is behind the reference design. And so KuGeek bought the reference design and are using the app that goes with it in somewhat modified form. And, you know, normally people would change the name there so you don't see Marvell SDK, but here KuGeek yeah, have been a little bit lazy about that yeah. one. So uh, the hardware is solid. They've got a user in the forums complaining that it's sending, <coughs> excuse me, got a user in the form, or compl- form complaining that it's not sending passwords encrypted back to KuGeek. I couldn't duplicate that. Using my MacBook Pro as a proxy, it did appear to be securely transferred, but I've reached out to them to get more information on that, and I'll get back to you on that, because that's going to be a problem. The hardware is well, solid. Wait the hardware minute. is solid. Wait a minute. So, so hold up. Let's talk about that as a problem for a moment. So yes, it's desirable that all things be encrypted. Yes, it's desirable that all data be transmitted over HTTPS. But HomeKit, you know, the the, um, the Mirai botnet from last summer, was where a lot of products had the same default password and were therefore easily taken over and turned into botnets. Mm-hmm. Uh, webcams, routers, uh, things like that, right? When everything uses the same default password and users aren't required to change password as a part of their initial steps, you're subject to big vulnerabilities. Here, because it's a user-generated password, yes? You had to yes. create a password? This, this is an account password for KuGeeks for historical energy use information primarily. Right. So for someone to do something with that password, they would either need to man in the middle you, or they would need to uh, attack KuGeeks servers to get those passwords. And then the question is, what would they do with that? Um, if it's historical energy use, I, I don't know that they do a whole lot with it. Yeah, yeah, let's be clear. When I say that this isn't great, this is, you know, on the scale of not greatness, this is not exposing your financial information to the world if you're practicing proper password hygiene. Right. But it's still, as far as best practices go, it, it this goes more along the lines of attention to detail 
Yeah, and it's a Koo Geek issue. It's not an Apple HomeKit right. issue. And yes, I should amplify that, that this has nothing to do with your HomeKit setup. And right. it is yet another reason that if this is actually the case, why well, you should not use the Koo Geek app. Koo Geek app. Right. HomeKit uses a eight-digit code that is, is printed on the side of the product, and you set it up using that individual code. It's a unique code. There's a secure chip inside each HomeKit product that Apple requires to be in each product. So as far as adding the product to the HomeKit network and using it, that part is secure. Yep. It's simply the app and firmware updates by requiring an account to get to the firmware updates. What they really ought to do is they ought not require an account to get firmware updates. Well, they don't. You don't need an account to get a firmware update. You, you just need your historical data is the question here. And again, password sanitation. If you are using the same password in multiple locations, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, you need to use unique passwords every time. You, you're best off if you use a password manager to store those unique passwords every time. And those passwords need to change you know, when, when you've had a password that's been in use for three years, it's been in use too long. Yeah, you need to change that. Yeah. But in any event, long story short, the hardware is solid. The hardware is a good way to pick this up and say, hey, yeah, HomeKit is for me before you start dropping a ton of money on switches and things like that. Mm-hmm. I still think that the ultimate expression of electrical control for HomeKit is a switch on the wall. Because somebody can just turn off power locally and you're done. If you've turned off power for your power strip on your iPhone... Then if somebody wants to turn on that power strip, they're pulling the plug out of the wall and plugging it back in. There's no way to do it locally. Wait, wait, slow down, slow down. Take, take this step by step for me. <laughs> you, you're, you're okay. using a, you have the, uh, the, the Kugeek unit, right? Yes. And you can remotely turn that on and off. Yes. But if you've plugged that into a power strip and the power strip is turned off, then it doesn't have power and you can't turn it back on. Right. If you've turned right. off the power, so that the just says device. Go ahead. Think, think, think a little bit about how you arrange things. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, and how they get power. You have to consider who's using it, not just what you're plugging into it. Mm-hmm. So, if everyone in the house is on board with your home kit setup and knows they can whip out their phone and turn on the power to this power switch, then you're good. If you've got a house guest that has no clue what's going on, or say a seven year old, or say a 75 year old, then you've got a problem. Mm-hmm. That's why I think the ultimate expression for power control for home kit is a physical wall switch. That's You've got yeah. the old school mechanical interface for the people who aren't on board with HomeKit, and yet you can still control it remotely. Right, and that exists. Oh, yes, it um, does. Elgato and iDevices both make in-wall wall I switches. I think Leviton does now as well. Uh, I don't know about Leviton. Lutron does Lutron. as a that part of the Cassetta Wireless. That may be who I'm thinking of. So if you have the Lutron Cassetta Wireless, which has a, a Lutron Cassetta Wireless bridge, then you can use the Lutron in-wall switches that are also Cassetta Wireless, and that will all be HomeKit compatible. So, like I said, good thing to buy if you're evaluating the system. Good thing to buy with proper education for everybody involved. Yes. And I, I agree with you about the wall switches being the appropriate thing uh, for most people. You know, we, we talk about these, these switches and turning things on and off. Primarily, people use them for lights and fans, right? If you have a box fan plugged into one of these switches, it's pretty cool because now you can do things like turn the, sw- the, the fan on and off, but also tie it into a scene that says that if you have a temperature sensor in the house, like the Elgato Eve, you can say that, or, or uh, an Echo B3 or Echo B4 that has tech temperature sensors in it. If the temperature rises above this degree, turn on the fan as well. Right. And uh, so so all these things sort of work in conjunction. Yeah, as long, the, as, you, as long as you've got a plan, you're in good shape. 
yeah, you know, a lot of lighting in, in American homes is not done with floor lamps or table lamps, uh, but lamps that are installed in the ceiling and controlled by a wall switch, which is why there, again, the wall switch makes a good difference. It's a good device to go with in wall. Now, there are things that are not home kit, but are all, but, but do take over the wall switch. Do you know this? No, I believe I'm about to get educated. Okay, so one of my favorite products is one that is called, and I'll tell you, it's called uh, SwitchMate. And SwitchMate magnetically attaches to the two screws on the wall plate around the light switch. And you just slap it on the wall, pair it with Bluetooth low energy to your phone, and there's there's no electrical installation, there's no screwing wiring terminals or dealing with fuse breakers. No, no you basically put in two AAA batteries, pair it with Bluetooth, slap it on your switch, and it has a little motor that runs the switch up and down. <laughs> That's cool. I'll have to take a look at that. It's brilliant. Now, they don't work with HomeKit because, as I mentioned before, there's a cost for the secure chip that Apple right. requires to go in every device. Well, until iOS 11. Fair enough. Currently, they function on their own with an iOS app. They work with an Android app as well. They also, via a, a bridge unit that bridges Bluetooth to Wi-Fi, they will work with Amazon Alexa and Google Home. That's cool. I'll have to look at that. So you can, you can, it's so cool. You know, the, the in-wall switches from Lutron are about 50 bucks. Yeah. These things are closer to 30. They're, they're 29. And you, you can find them in, in places like Target or Bed Bath & Beyond or Kohl's or that kind of store. And you just buy them and you put batteries in and you slap them on the wall and you're done. Yeah. Home, home automation is a funny thing. It's hard to get a good handle on what you can do with it until you actually see it in use. And while Apple's got some demo stations in their, in some of their larger stores, 40, 45 or 46 stores, 45, yeah. 46 stores where you can actually look at this kind of thing in an interactive display, you know, Oh, I'm going to turn on the fan. You can see it turn on the, on the, on their huge display. It's not until you get a feel for that. It's, it's hard to figure out how it's going to work. And that's why I think that's where I think the Kugik fits in. So, so the thing to know is that with home automation, everyone's trying to solve a slightly different problem. And one of the questions, one of the challenges is, you know, okay, great. You can turn on a light switch, but yeah, I could get up and turn on the light too. Yeah, what, what's, what's the and problem I could probably, trying to solve? I could probably do it faster than you can unlock your phone, find an app, open the app and tap on the thing to, to turn the thing off or on. Right. But when you start doing voice control, I can turn it on and off by voice faster than you can get up from the couch to do it. My problem was, is I turned off my kid's stereo. So he knows to come up for dinner. Why would you do that? Because he doesn't come for when he's called the third time for dinner, turn off the radio. He'll come. Yeah. I, he didn't really care for that. I really like the, uh, the ability to do the ceiling fan, right? Yeah, I that's, have that's one of the problems I'm trying to solve is the ceiling fan. And a lot of the home kit ceiling fans are these, these Hunter replacements units that cost like 300 bucks. And Insteon has a fan link that can adapt an existing one to, to be home kit compatible through their hub pro. But Insteon is doing a really bad job of both maintaining their stuff and compatibility. You know, they have yeah. a ton of Insteon accessories, but only a few of them are compatible with the Hub Pro that is HomeKit compatible. It's it's just kind of a nightmare for them. Lutron, for their, their part, is really good. The Lutron stuff is well-supported, is well-controlled, is well-updated. Lutron don't have 
an, an in fan or in the bell housing for the ceiling fan control. You can, you can do stuff where you can control the lights, but they can't control fan speed. Okay. Which is slightly obnoxious. Um, I really wish they would update to do that. The, cause you know, I've got perfectly fine fans. There's no reason that I need another fan to get home kit. I just need the thing that I can wire in that will give it to me. Fair enough. And, Hey, we got to wrap this up. I got to get back to the keys. Oh, humbug. Do you want to yeah. talk CarPlay for a second? I uh, wish I could. We're already almost two hours into this, so I got to I gotta wrap this up. I would I would like two, to. But I'm... Two hours. Wow, that's an epic episode. Yeah, okay, that, right? we are going to talk CarPlay next week. I am so happy you were here. I'm so happy for all of our listeners taking this time to spend their day with us. We will be back. Yeah, I, I appreciate your listening. Week. You can find me on Apple Insider every weekday and sometimes on weekends. Or if you're interested in this kind of delivery for me, I'm over at spacejavelin.com on Monday mornings. And you can find me on Twitter at, at VMarks. And I encourage you to also listen to the Scout Tech podcast at tapewrite.com slash at scout. Thank you very much. We'll be back next week.